0: Our coverage continues now with the magnificent Laura Coates and the excellent <laughs> Allison Camerata. Hey, Laura. Hey, Allison. How you guys doing? The
2: Hello. way Allison cocked her head just now, she's waiting for her adjective to kick in. She was like, if she's magnificent, what am I? I saw it was it. excellent. Accents, excellent. There we go. Excellent. Great dashing Simple Jake but classic. Tapper. Yes, Simple, thank but you. Simple but classic. Love we it. like the no tie, right, Allison? It well, gives a different vibe from him. I Somebody stole
0: it. all my ties. It's, it's, it's not a fashion choice. I was theft.
3: Yeah, I I see. I also like that you're calling it an experiment. You should be in a white lab coat (laughs) starting on Monday.
0: I'm (laughs) waist down. I am. Oh,
3: disturbing. disturbing. It just came a little
2: bit real just now. (laughs) Wonderful. Nice to see you, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Have a great weekend. Good to see you guys. Everyone, we are keeping the conversation going tonight, not about the lab coat and Jake Tapper, but here we are. Good evening, everyone. I am Laura Coates in Washington, D.C.
3: And I'm Alison Camerota in New York, and this is CNN Tonight. So we're here with our panelists from across the political spectrum, one team here in New York with me. And the other team here
2: (laughs) in Washington, D.C. So we're going to kick it off with the Herschel Walker-Raphael Warnock Senate debate. It just wrapped up a little while ago, Allison, in Georgia as we're getting ready to talk to our panelists as well. But wow. Have you seen some of these clips?
3: Yeah, I was trying to watch it while we were prepping and it's a very high stakes. It was a very high stakes debate because it's the only one until Election Day. And of course, all eyes on everyone knew the abortion issue would come up and how Herschel Walker was going to address it Mm -hmm. and how Raphael Warnock was going to address it. So we'll get into that right now. Let's get the impressions of our panel we have cnn economics commentator Catherine rampell here along with cnn political commentator scott jennings and nina turner co-chair of bernie sanders 2020 presidential campaign guys thanks so much for being here with me let's get right to it let's see how they talked about the issue that has been uh, in the news all week and that is the abortion claims watch
0: this this week you said that the accusations are quote all lies For the voters watching tonight, can you explain the circumstances
4: surrounding these claims? You have 60 seconds.
5: Well, as I said, that's a lie. And you know, one most thing I put, I put it in a book. One thing about my life is I've been very transparent. Not like the senator, he's hid things. But at the same time, I said, that's a lie. And on abortion, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe in life. And I tell people this, Georgia is a state that respects life and I'll be a senator that protects life. And I said that was a lie and I'm not backing down. And we have Senator Warnock, people that would do anything and say anything for this seat, but I'm not gonna back down. Cuz this seat is too important to the Georgia people for me to back down right now.
6: The patient's room is too narrow and small and cramped a space for a woman, her doctor, and the United States government. We are witnessing right now what happens when politicians, most most of them men, pile into patient's rooms. You get what you're seeing right now. And the women of Georgia, the women of Georgia deserves a senator who will stand with them. I trust women more than I trust politicians.
3: Nina, I felt like uh, Senator Warnock there pivoted away from Herschel Walker's personal story, which is problematic any way you slice it, his personal story. He has four children with four different women, three of whom he's only recently acknowledged. He's not a family man, according to his son who's speaking out. He's an absentee father. So, so, But I felt that Senator Warnock sort of pivoted away from, from diving into that. Did he miss an opportunity?
7: I think Senator Warnock is really concentrating on the larger issue, which is what women of this country need, not more government in their wombs, but to be able to have the ability to have choice. However, The Republicans at large have a problem. Is the moral issue of life, is that real for them? Or is it just about bossing around women? If it's real, if the moral issue is real, then Republicans in Georgia should vote for Senator Warnock to be there again, if it's if it's the moral issue.
3: But, but it, do you think that Senator Warnock should have gone more about his personal well, peccadilloes? I mean, he could have. For,
7: for more political points, yes, Allison, he could have. But he is focused on the needs of the women of that state in this country. So he stayed on his message.
3: Scott, I know you don't often give the Democrats tips, but what did you think <laughs> of that response that Senator I I mean, let's do it.
7: Let's
3: do that. What would you have said to Senator Warnock to do right there?
1: Uh, Well, there was more to the exchange, actually. Um, I don't know if we're going to play it or not. But Warnock also got asked directly by the moderators, who I thought did a good job tonight, by the way, if there were any uh, instances, any limits that he would put on abortion at all. And he really dodged it. He didn't have an answer for it. and Walker got asked directly what his position on the actual policy issue was. And he said he endorsed the Georgia heartbeat bill. So he took a pretty specific position tonight on the Georgia bill, which he attributed to Governor Kemp, who's pretty popular in Georgia. And Warnock, I thought, really dodged. Yeah. I mean, it's been a central argument of his campaign to, yeah. to say, you know, wide open here. And he, he kind of ran away from it. I, I, it was interesting. I thought they both.
3: Yeah, I'm not hearing your, you giving him advice. <laughs> well, my, my, my advice <laughs> is to own your
1: own campaign. His campaign and his record is no limits. No limits. Anytime, all the time. That's and not, that's what they're uh, running Scott, on. Scott, you and Walk- I
3: argue about this all the time. Yes, we, that's we do. Just is not Walker is a hypocrite. It, 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 it is. And the Republicans it is are hypocrites. It, it's his voting record, know, Allison. What, no, it isn't, Scott. It's about <laughs> it's about saving the mother's life. If you don't want to save the mother's life, then I don't know what we're talking about. That's You're talking about abortion after 20 weeks. That's when it is used.
1: That's not that's the limit in fact. the bill. There is no limit in the bill so, he voted on. And, and by the way, you shouldn't be exasperated. That's the core argument of his campaign. Full-blown abortion on demand. No, it is. It isn't. It is the no. main issue. The he's
3: That's not true. It's got help, <laughs> um, Catherine. Well, what did you think of the clips that you've seen here?
8: Um, you know, I thought it was interesting in that Warnock is clearly well, t- to some extent, he's trying to make this a referendum um, on the issues, but also about um, about his his opponent and his opponent is trying to make, Walker is trying to make the the whole campaign a referendum on Biden. And I thought that that was an interesting juxtaposition there. You saw Warnock himself distancing himself. Uh, several times. Doing what? Sorry, we're not doing what to himself? Distancing himself. Oh, from Biden. From Biden. Sorry. Given the opportunity to talk about uh, 2024, to talk about other kinds of alliances with the president. He kind of indicated that there was some coolness between them. Yeah. Um, he also talked quite a bit about his alliances with Republicans. He talked about teaming up with Republicans on maternal health, for example, uh, with Rubio. So there were a number of opportunity, another of, of instances where Warnock was trying to make this about he's the bipartisan guy, um, you know, not specifically going after the peccadillos of his of his opponent, but um, yeah. but, you know, tr- trying to make it trying to make it about the policy, trying to make it about how he's he's not a dyed in the wool Democrat. Which that was kind of interesting.
3: OK, so, Laura, you heard the thoughts here of our panel. Um, what other angles
9: Well, we
2: were actually champing at the bit here just now, thinking about all the other things that happened as well. And there was a moment, Allison, I want to play for everyone, because it's a moment where I think, frankly, everyone's been talking about, which is, look, the no experience of Herschel Walker. We've seen before the outsider philosophy of this person can come in. Listen to this exchange between Warnock and Herschel Walker, and we'll we'll talk about that. It's when he's talking about the closing statements, if you will.
6: These are difficult times. These are dark times. But the scripture says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness overcometh it not.
5: I'm honored to represent you in the
6: Senate. I hope that you'll show up
5: to vote early. For so those of you who are concerned about uh, re- uh, voting for me a uh, non-politician, I want you to think about the damage politicians like Joe Biden and Rafael Juana had done to this country. I want you to think about Raphael Juana, what he said today. And I said, he was gonna try to give you some smooth talk and tell you what's happening. What's happening is this country is hurting. What's happening is we need leaders
2: Gosh, I'm with my panel right now. You guys, when he makes the argument and talks about this, the idea. I mean, I'm with Elliot Williams here, and Anira Hawk is a former um, Obama White House senior director, and also Republican strategist Rena Shaw is here, senior legal analyst Elliot Williams as well. I'm just glad to announce to you. I was so excited to talk and hear your opinions about this issue. What do you make of this discussion? I mean, the whole look. I know I'm not a politician. But that's a good thing. Is it persuasive?
10: Well, he's trying to tie Warnock to Biden overall. And yes, Biden's overall numbers in Georgia and Georgians in general are polling that they don't think the country's heading in a good direction. Mm. But two thirds of Georgians will say they would encourage their friends and family to move to Georgia. They think things in Georgia itself are great. So we're seeing one of these weird things we haven't seen in a long time, a split ticket. 10% of Republican voters for Kemp, for governor, really like Warnock. So it's Mm -hmm. almost as if... They've neutralized the race issue on the surface. And now maybe people are
2: actually able to look at the issues. I wonder, though, that whenever I t- think about race issues, especially in Georgia, and think of the conversations up till now, has been about law enforcement in part. And that was one of the ways they tried to get at Herschel Walker um, and also Raphael Warnock. And listen to this exchange as well. Mm. well you hear this as well, what they t- had to talk about. It was discussing about, well, you'll see, maybe a prop of some kind was used.
6: You can support police officers, as I've done, through the COPS program, through the Invest to Protect program, while at the same time holding police officers, like all professions, accountable. One thing I have not done, I've never pretended to be a police officer, and, and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police.
5: Well, and now I have to respond to we that. Are, we are, we are no, no, moving no, no, on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what? so funny? I am with, with many police officers, <laughs> and at the same time... Mr. Walker, to, ha- Mr. Walker, no, no, Mr. Walker, no, 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 no. Mr. Walker me, truth, Mr. Walker, excuse me, Mr. Walker, please, out of
6: respect, the truth, I, I, is I need here. to let
11: you know, Mr. Yes. Walker,
12: you are very well yes. aware of the ruse tonight. Yes. And you
2: have a prop. Yes. That is not allowed, sir. Yeah. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. It, it,
11: this
5: is real. And he said, I but, have a problem. But I never it is considered a, a
2: prop.
11: Mr. Walker, yes. excuse me, sir. Yes. You're very well aware of the rules, aren't you? Well, aren't he, you aware he brought up
5: the truth. We're, Let's talk about the truth. So
2: thank you for putting that yes. prop away. Elliot, I know you, you were dying to say the rules are there ain't no rules. I know, you're, I know there was a movie reference coming
13: out of you. Uh, no, come on. I knew it. You, come it oh, Didn't come right on. That. Yeah, it, no. it
2: was coming.
13: No, 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 no. Um, you know, it, th- I think there's a, there's a lot going on right there. The prop thing was sort of stupid and silly. And OK, maybe it's a real badge. Maybe it isn't. I think what's striking here is that you have two black men de- debating on a stage, right? And the next, frankly, you know, it's to state the obvious, the next senator from Georgia is going to be a black man. Now, something that Walker did point to earlier in the debate is, you know, his own race and his own blackness. There's a lot of ways to be a black person in america as i think you and i can attest to and many of the people uh the viewers watching now at the end of the day law enforcement and the experiences of black folks are an important issue to come up in a debate i don't know if that really helped move the debate forward at all but to be clear none of this is to ever say that race is now off the table Mm -hmm. because these two black men are running There's still black people in the deep south it's a specter looming over this race
2: Rena, what do you think Yeah, you know,
14: throughout this campaign, I've just seen Walker do this aw shucks routine. And to me, it's kind of ingenious because Mm. it immediately disarms voters and makes them think, well, he's sort of on the same plane as me. He's much like me. And for people who don't have a plug into Washington, it works every single time. This badge, pulling out this prop badge, just as a continuation of that routine. I saw one thing tonight that really struck me. And it's the fact that there was dodging of the questions by both men, actually. Mm. And and that just was just obvious to me. Yeah, Walker struggled with delivery, but there were moments in which he was able to shine and, again, bring that sort of relatability out. I'm not like them. I'm like you. That's- There's yeah, the
10: challenge, just- what happens, though, with, is that when Walker uh, gets these moments, he's constantly fighting his own negative narrative. A negative oh. narrative that he has, himself has fallen into, right? Uh absentee. He does step on the rake a lot. Right? Yeah. Absentee fatherhood. Now we're talking about how he takes care of children or not. Uh, the idea of whether or not a badge is fake, whereas you have Walker, uh, rather, you have Senator Warnock able to walk around Georgia for the last year and some change talking about the bipartisan infrastructure investments, right? Like he's talking mm. about real deliverables. And in an environment where the majority, vast majority of Georgians like their state and how things are going, that environment favors incumbents. Really interesting
13: thing about that, that you shucks. Know, I'm just a simple country former Heisman winner uh, who's running for office here. Yeah, when, and, no, and he's just the, the guy
10: p- who, you know, now right. runs the church that but, Martin Luther King. Here's did. the thing:
13: I'm not a career politician. Not noting that Raphael Warnock has been a politician, literally. For 19 months, somehow he's managed and maybe it'll land with, with Georgia voters, but managed to create this narrative that somehow this man who literally was a pastor still is a pastor and is not a career politician by any stretch of the imagination, but is the problem in Washington. It's really fascinating. Maybe it works. Who knows?
2: Well, let's, I mean, Allison, when you think about this, I mean, we're thinking about the ways in which the aw I think that's going to be the new phrase, the aw <laughs> moment of tonight. You know, we are looking at this. Obviously, we are the the national media of CNN having these conversations. But they do say all politics is local. Is it working, you think, a way to kind of say, listen, they can tell you who you're supposed to vote for or why I shouldn't be the person. But
3: Georgia, you tell me. Is that even persuasive to you? I think so, actually, Mm. because I also thought that... um, Herschel Walker did a good job of really lowering expectations mm-hmm. beforehand. I mean there Were was this... intentional though? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Cuz there okay. was this moment, there was this moment beforehand uh back in September where um they he was asked about the debate and he said, "Look, I'm not that smart, basically. I mean, I think I'm quoting him. He he self-described. He's like, I'm not that smart. But Raphael Warnock, he's a real smart guy, and he dresses really nice, so I know he's going to kind of kick me around. Like, that's the ultimate awe-shocks, where he's saying, like, don't expect anything, and then everything's going to be better, Hmm. you know, than that. Well, I mean, the lawyer in me loves to manage expectations, but the
2: voter in me, I don't know. I, I, I wrestle with whether it's intentional or whether it's that's how it started, and then a great strategist said, You know what? Let's lean into this more. Either way, an outsider we know have been successful. They've been successful at all facets of the government. But after a while, I wonder how much outside you can be if you run for re-election.
3: Good point. But we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Okay, everybody, stick around. We have a lot more to talk about. We also want to know what you think. So what's your reaction to this race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker? That and anything else you want to say to Laura and me? And I mean anything. Tweet Allison us. means <laughs> anything. <Yeah. laughs> Just Allison. That's right. Use the hashtag CNN Soundoff at Allison Tamarata at the Laura Coates.
2: All right, tonight we've got some more never-before-seen video from January 6th. The filmmaker, Alexandra Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's daughter, you know she was at the Capitol to to document the peaceful transfer of power. Now, we know that didn't happen. And what she captured was her mother and Vice President Mike Pence on a call, the two of them trying to work out how to certify the electoral vote from Fort McNair, where congressional leaders were actually sheltering in place.
12: We're at the, uh, Fort McNair, which has facilities for the House and the Senate to meet uh, as a backup plan, should anything like, well, not like this, but anything happen that would warrant that. Um, uh, the, the logistic, they want to bring all the members here, House and Senate, anyway. Uh, but, but we're just making a judgment. We'd rather go to the Capitol and do it there, but it doesn't seem to be safe. What do you think, Mr. but he spoke in terms of going back to the Capitol which is what we want to do too but uh, Mitch was talking about going back to the Capitol yeah. well we would like to go back to the I. I that would be our hope as well the security is telling us that it's going to be a while before the Capitol will be uh, able to do that
3: Laura, this Alvin, is, yeah. yeah, it's so valuable. The, this video, seeing it, every single frame of it is so valuable for the American public to see because what that just reveals to me, and I, I was struck by that again yesterday, which was that Mitch, Senator Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. and Vice President Pence were determined to have them come back to the Capitol that night yeah. and vote to certify. While Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer wanted that to happen, but weren't sure it was going to be able to happen. So they were looking for alternatives because they weren't sure that it would be able to be cleaned up and get everybody mm-hmm. out. But I mean, the more we hear from this, it was Vice President Pence and Mitch McConnell who who made it happen back there. Yeah. And think
2: about how she said it. Mitch wants, I mean, he's had the familiarity. You don't often hear that, but Mitch, she's talking to Mike, Mike Pence. We'd all had wondered all this time, Allison, what was going on? What was transpiring? How did they end up getting back to the Capitol that night to finalize and finish the job that was actually supposed to be there? I want to turn to our panel here in D.C. and ask their advice and, and thoughts on this. Moving on, I hear Nira hawk, Rena Shaw, and Elliot Williams again. You guys, I mean, are you struck by the fact that, again— This is not the commander-in-chief who's doing any of this. They were so intent in making sure that the American people, and dare I say the world, knew that this was getting done today. This was classic taking care of business.
13: Did that strike you as... Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of people have this gauzy image of the 1980s of Reagan and Tip O'Neill and these guys that cut the backroom deals and everything worked out fine. It was perfect and wonderful. And it's not, you know, it's not the case, right? A lot of that still exists today, but you have the artifice. Of these politicians needing to go out and blast each other right afterward. Mm-hmm. Now, sadly, it took a tragedy to expose these people actually interacting like human beings and, and people that care for each other and so on. Um, how we get past the ugly partisanship is really beyond me, but but it you know, but they do work together well behind the scenes, and that was evident uh, on and the state of you tragedy. Think
2: human beings to me though, I mean, it's also they were they were. Poised. I mean, the human part of people would be like, I'm scared. I'm freaking out. I'm running. I'm crying. This is happening. Here's a family there. Instead, they were like, let's get the job
10: done. They were ready to serve their country, right? They stepped up to the moment. I we didn't see this on the tape, but I did kind of love the moment when she pulls her mask down and as she's asking President, Vice President Pence if he's okay and how's he's doing, and she busts out a, a beef jerky and just starts eating that. Snapping like, this into is,
2: a Slim Jim. Right, like this is what we do,
10: right? This is how moms roll. We take care of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also exposed, right, the, the very real human nature of what was going on behind the scenes, how easy it is to have the bureaucracy or people dragging their feet gum up and put our democracy at risk, right? The the, the president was still thinking, of potentially, of maybe even coming yeah. there. You uh, have Senator Chuck Schumer saying, I'm going to call DOD. We need to make this happen. They're calling National Guards from other states. And we now know, based on the evidence from the committee hearings, that every one of those entities that could, could have helped had been dragging its feet all along.
13: And you know, Laura, it's well, important that you said that, that the world has had its eyes on us at that moment, because in a period of transition, that is when adversaries of the United yeah. States are watching America and ready to pounce. And we, That's they, right. and Pelosi even says it at some point, we need to show that our government can continue and, and endure and so on. So it was a symbol yeah. to, to not just the other political You're party. Right. But, but even
14: more so, it was that classic show of American strength that I think we can all unify around and say our country needed to meet that moment. Moment and our leaders met it, and somebody well, who, some of our
2: leaders met it. Well, let's
14: <laughs> let's be honest. I think you know we saw Thune in the room, Senator Thune, Senator Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. You know McCarthy
2: absent. I didn't see him anywhere. I saw Scalise. So so yeah, there is a scene that he's there, but he takes his his glass or glass off for a moment. He's there, but we don't sure. hear from him. Yes, yeah. So so of course,
14: whatever your politics are, Nancy Pelosi was the star of that show. And if that wasn't a brilliant ad for why we need to elect more women to office, like, I don't know what it is because she was just calm and cool. And she, it, it was just obvious to me that she wanted to take care of everybody. Didn't matter what their party was. And she just wanted to get the job done. And I think it all just goes back to this feeling that we need each other. We need to go across the aisle. And I'm a former Capitol Hill staffer. I know nothing gets done on that Hill unless one side meets the other in the middle. Yes, Wait, we you know did what?
10: do something to make sure this doesn't happen again. The, yeah. They updated the Electoral Count Act, and that's literally to that's make right. sure that that moment of official certification is just going to be a pro forma thing, right? That, mm. that this, yeah. this pomp and circumstance is going to be acknowledged, but you can transfer and actually elect a president without having to have that, yeah. well, there is that one- the capital a target again. There's a, sure.
2: there's a one thing you said, though. It, it made me think, yeah. and yeah. I'm, I'm going to bring Allison into this, too, because we, we were talking about this offline, too. I, know, right, I mean, the,
1: Senate, both McConnell the idea here yep, when
2: responded. you've got... Um, the question of why are we just seeing this now? I mean, the idea for the reasons that it did show strength, I mean, Pelosi was undeniably strong, had the resolve. McConnell was involved, you had Schumer, you saw different actors who were all there, Vice President Pence. There are talking points, as you know, out there, and Chatter is always gonna be around, that this was a hell of an ad campaign to show what it means to have Democrats in control or bipartisanship working. I wonder if if that is part of what people will take away, that sort of cynical view of, oh, I know why we're seeing this now.
3: Well, I mean, obviously they did hold it for this hearing Mm -hmm. and it was powerful. I mean, the hearing, uh, the committee members have wanted to have some level of a bombshell each time and something new that people could take away and something that viewers would tune in for. And I get that in terms of TV production and wanting to draw eyeballs. Makes total sense. In terms of if we'd seen it earlier, would it have changed anything? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just grateful that we're seeing it now for all of the reasons that we're talking about. I think it's a really important piece of history there. Well, I ask, I mean, for for me, I think about taking a step back.
2: I wonder why the committee didn't use it sooner. That, I mean, that to me, I think about in, in prosecuting and trying to make sure you have a case and you lead with your, you know, the proverbial Trump, I think, man, the more I have to show the chaos and what's happening and getting things done, the more you think about using it. I, I wonder what went into that calculus. I really do.
3: I think we'll have an opportunity to ask some of them at some mm-hmm. point about that. Uh, all right, Laura, uh, great panel. Meanwhile, here's what's coming up. So a jury deciding that the Parkland school shooter deserves life in prison without parole. So not the death penalty, as you know. But the families of his victims say that's not justice. So we're going to speak to one of those family members and to a juror who's going to explain their thinking. A jury in Florida deciding against the death penalty for the gunman who killed 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Instead, the jury recommending life in prison without the possibility of parole. The decision deeply disappointing many of the victim's family members, including Linda Beagle Shulman. She's the mother of Scott Beagle, the teacher who died protecting his students. And Linda, it's always... Great to see you despite the um, really trying circumstances of this week. And so, Linda, tell me um, why you were disappointed and what message you think this verdict sends.
11: Well, thank you for having me and thank you for always being with me from the very beginning. You have no idea how much that means. Um, The verdict was, I believe the verdict was wrong. I mean, when we when we heard the verdict, we were all in disbelief. I mean, you know, I find that the verdict was totally disrespectful of the 17 people that were murdered. It seems like the jury decided that the murderer's life was way more important than the life of the 17 people that he murdered. It it was just so wrong. I mean, all of the aggravating factors were checked off, every single one of them, and I believe that if the jury would have gone um, forward with the letter of the law and how they go through the mitigating, the the aggravating factors, and they checked them all off and said yes, he did this, and yes, he did this, and yes, he did this, it was unanimous that every single aggravating factor was checked off. Mm-hmm factors there 's no way in the world that those mitigating factors could have outweighed the aggravating mm. factors yeah i mean the 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 state's attorney did such a great job and even disproved the experts from The defense attorneys. It it, it
3: just boggles the mind. Well, I do want to ask you about those mitigating factors because there was this lengthy list of 41 different mitigating factors. I mean, everything from fetal alcohol syndrome, developmental disorders. He was sexually abused. He had neurological impairments. Should those factors matter? Yes, they should matter if if they if they were proven. It seems like the
11: it seems like the defense attorneys threw as much linguine on the wall to see what would stick. but you know what after every single one of those mitigating factors, the state's attorneys could prove could disprove them and prove them wrong at one point, they had asked to reread part of um part of you know the the record that had been made part, they asked the court reporter to read back. Some uh, portions, and what the court reporter read back should have proven to them that the the, the expert that dis- that said that fetal alcohol syndrome was was you know one of the top reasons. Our our expert's testimony disproved all hmm. of it. it. It was just, and, and at one point they also asked to see the weapon, the AR-15, the weapon of war. I mean, because at one point they said something about, you know, the tapping of his finger. Well, he managed to tap the trigger of that AR-15 139 times,
3: and and it didn't seem to bother him. Hmm. Um, Linda, as I mentioned, we have one of the jurors who was a no vote on the death penalty coming up. What do you want to say to the jurors about this?
11: You know, I know they had a job to do, and they did their job and their job was unbelievable day in and day out, looking at autopsy photos, looking, go, actually going to the 1200 building. I just, I would love to be able to ask the juror face to face what it was. What, tell me, tell me why, why did you find it that this murderer who was cold-blooded, he premeditated, calculated, and, and, and planned it all and wrote it out and did exactly what he wrote out, exactly the way and what he put on his cell phone and it, it, how he dictated what he was going to do. And I'm, I want to I make everyone suffer. He actually did everything that he planned. I would like to know why they didn't give him the death penalty. Let's face it, Allison. I mean, it's a perfect death penalty case. If this case did not warrant the death penalty, then why do we have a death penalty? Mm-hmm. And I, I wanna know if their, you know, if their own feelings and, and their emotions played into this. It's not supposed to. Your emotions should not be playing into you know, th- the verdict. It just shouldn't. And it seems to me that, I mean, one of the mitigating factors, I think number one was he's a human being.
8: Really?
3: Yeah, that was I was struck by that one as well. Um, That one. I don't know. I mean, I don't I I, you know that that that's its own statement. But the others um, were complicated. But I hear everything that you're saying and we'll try to get you some answers. Linda, Um, thank you uh, for making the time and sharing your thoughts with us. I know it's been a really hard week for you and so many of the other family members. And we're thinking of you and of Scott and of your entire family. And Linda, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for always being there for me. So, Laura, you just heard there. um, I mean, I think that Linda has always been able to, I think, in a really straightforward, direct way, talk about how she's feeling and exactly Mm -hmm. what she wants. And she just did again. They want answers. They just want to know what the reasoning was. If this was a perfect death penalty case to the victim's families, and that's what they all say, then what happened? What went wrong there? You know, I can't help but think about the
2: evergreen nature of this and how on the backdrop of other school shootings and the the process to try to even bring a case to trial if the shooter is even still alive. I mean, all this is going through my mind as I'm listening to her talking about my mind goes to what's going on in places like Uvalde. Going on to what's played, happened in Connecticut with um, the parents of the Sandy Hook victims and beyond. And, you know, up next, Allison, I'm actually going to speak with a member of the jury who did vote against the death penalty. And I want to hear what she has to say. One of the Parkland jurors says, serving on that jury in such a horrific mass shooting case, was one of the hardest experiences of her life. And then after the vote to recommend life without parole but no death penalty for the shooter, well, the atmosphere in the jury room got ugly. That juror is Melody Vinoy, and she joins me now. Melody, thank you for coming. This can't be easy. The entire process, I mean, I know as a former prosecutor, look, you don't ask to be on a jury, and we ask a lot of the jurors. You've had to go visit the site that was preserved. You've been to the school. You've had to be through the trial. You've seen the pain and anguish. I right. I want to check in with you, Melody. You said it was one of the most horrific experiences of your life to even go through this trial. What has it been like emotionally for you to be in this position?
15: Harrowing, uh, to say mm-hmm. the least. Um, as I stated earlier, it's one of the hardest things I've ever gone through um, in my life.
2: When you hear, and we're all hearing, we just heard from one of the uh, mothers of a victim, there's been a lot of conversation about people watching the decision that was made, and at one point she mentioned, and others have, if this is not the, the phrase was a perfect death penalty case. I wonder, what what was the deciding factor for you as to why this particular defendant should have had life without the possibility of parole.
15: Um, first of all, um, you know, we were instructed that um, he will be punished, mm. um, and either way, it, it is a punishment. Also, I, uh, for me, it was the culmination of the the, the mitigating factors, and um, I was undecided up until mm. uh, the very end, and during deliberation, going through some of the other evidence and, um, you know, being able to sit with it and read it in its entirety, uh, I believe that, Overall, the the system um, really, really failed. I saw numerous documents where several professionals, as well as members of the school district, uh, recommended that he be in a residential facility um, since he was very young. That didn't happen. Um, So I think it was a measure of, um, you know, his whole background. um, from being in utero utero all the way through till
2: till that day. um, I mean, there were about 41 different mitigating factors, and obviously you were instructed that, look, at the end of the day, you have to decide collectively as a part of the jury whether those mitigating factors outweighs what he has done to others. And um, as you mentioned, you talk about the system failing him. What do you, what was it like when you were, Speaking your mind in the deliberation process, I understand things got ugly. Were there particular points that stuck for the other jurors, trying to persuade you to choose differently? And if so, what were those moments?
15: I I think it was. Um, it's very you know respectful um, going you know through the process. Things really didn't get heated until after um, the paperwork uh, had been turned in. And mm. those who were very strongly uh, felt that he should have been given the death penalty um, in a very small room started to chat and um, insinuate some things about um, those of us who, um, you know, voted for life. Um, like what? What are they uh, insinuate? Um, That particularly the one juror who who, uh, knew, you know, uh, what her thoughts were and and where she stood um, earlier in the process, the assumption was that she, you know, she knew, you know, going in to the process how uh, she was going to uh, um, vote. Um, So Hmm. assumptions, assumptions like that. um, And. Uh, it, it was really uh, disheartening considering all of the months that we had be- been together and we had formed relationships. So uh, it was disheartening to say the least, uh, the comments um, that we, you know, that were, you know, sh- shared yeah. um, after after the fact.
2: You know, there was a, a question earlier, as I mentioned, there was one of the mothers who was on the program and one of the questions she had um And i'd like to ask you this question as difficult as it may be and just to Mm -hmm. paraphrase it was did you bring your emotions about the defendant into the deliberative process did you yourself pity him in a way that made you not think of the pity that maybe should have gone to the victims that was her concern and wondering how Mm -hmm. you balanced it Can you respond to whether your emotions took precedent over what you were instructed to do?
15: I think, if you know, my emotions were clearly uh, there um, for for the victims. There's not a a day that goes by that I I don't see their faces. Mm -hmm. So I don't think so. What I think um, failed uh, the families is is the Florida law. you know personally should we be able to consider mitigating factors um that you know i'm not necessarily for that but we Mm -hmm. have been instructed time and time again these are the rules Um, it was more emotional for myself the other jurors and even the defense attorneys during the impact statements. Yet we could not consider all of that um, in our our determination. And um, I think that when you have 12 very diverse, unique individuals uh, on a jury, um, and I'm no mathematician, I just think it's pretty hard pressed to assume, um, despite you know, the facts in the case that all 12 would ultimately go for the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, There are different um, opinions on what punishment is. I know there are people out there who feel that the death penalty is the easy way out. Um, So um, everyone, you know, has their opinions about the case. Um, For me, and I can only speak for myself, the families and the victims are, are you know, you know, have stayed with me throughout this whole whole mm-hmm. time. I feel that it is Florida law. And to my understanding, um, the majority yeah. uh, ruling changed in 2016. So had that not happened, he certainly would have gotten the death penalty. And myself, I would have been OK with that. So.
2: Melody, thank you so much. I will tell you exactly what Mm -hmm. I told every juror in a courtroom, even though we're now in the court of public opinion. And it is thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. I know it was not easy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Allison, it is very difficult to have me just to wrestle with all these issues. You and I have talked about this so many times, what that must have been like for everyone in the courtroom about this whole time.
3: That's what I'm struck by, which is for every single one of these horrific shootings and any, I guess, burst of violence, the ripple effect. So the victims' families are ruined and traumatized and the jurors are traumatized. I mean, just the incredible fallout across the board after a moment like this. And she described it as harrowing being on that jury and having to look at all the evidence, I feel for her, and that was brave. Mm. It was brave of her to come on, and, of course, it was brave of Linda uh, Beagle-Schulman to come on and share her feelings, but um, I I understand uh, how hard and traumatizing it was for everyone there. And she talked about the
2: difference of punishment and, when the idea of the easy way out. You heard her make that comment, the death penalty is the easy way out, punishment otherwise, and also the system failing. And you catch what she said, that she didn't think that mitigating factors should ought to be considered here. And the fact that they were was required. And if he had gotten death penalty before the law changed, she alluded to, she may have been OK with that. There's, there's a lot to unpack, Allison.
3: All right. Meanwhile, we want to get to this, because attacks, accusations, and smears We're talking about the Wisconsin Senate debate. It got ugly, so ugly that Senator Ron Johnson was booed by the audience. And that was after a softball question. So we'll show you what happened next.
2: So CNN is learning tonight that the former president, Barack Obama, will actually go to the Wisconsin state to actually stump. For Senate candidate Mandela Barnes at the end of October, Allison, I mean, Barnes and his uh, Republican opponent, Senator Ron Johnson, they debated last night. And one of those moments, well, it really stands out. Listen.
0: What do you find admirable about your opponent? Well,
4: no, no, seriously, I, I do think, you know, the senator has proven to be a family man. And I think that's that's admirable. Uh, you know that's absolutely to be respected. He, he speaks about his family. He's uh, done a lot to provide for them. I absolutely respect that, Mr. Johnson.
13: I mean, likewise. I appreciate the fact that uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes had loving parents, a school teacher, father worked third shift, so he had you know good upbringing. I guess what puzzles me about that is, with that upbringing, why is he turned against America? I mean, what, why why does he find the founding right. of America awful? Allison, that's the
2: definition of a backhanded,
3: I mean, it got booed. Yes, I mean, I thought that was interesting that the Wisconsin audience did not like that answer. That wasn't something positive, Senator Johnson. That wasn't (laughs) the question. You failed (laughs) on that question. (laughs)
2: Yeah. You did not understand the assignment. Yeah, you didn't understand. Please, yes, resubmit
3: for a better grade. Um, Yeah, that was not civil discourse. And I wonder, I mean, I just, I just wonder if it would hurt him, if it will hurt him in Wisconsin. But I don't know, Just that's just based on the booze, but probably not. They have bigger fish to fry, I'm sure.
2: I mean, they had to have been prepared for that question. They probably did a little bit of a focus group. So maybe he thinks it was advantageous. And maybe we'll see if President Obama is advantageous in Wisconsin.
3: All right, tell us what you think. How would you have answered the moderator's question? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes. Yeah, so, you know what? We're going to rephrase it. Tell us something positive about us. You can tweet oh. us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. You can uh, <laughs> hashtag CNN Sound Off. We've got much more after this. I don't have to tell you we are a nation awash in conspiracy theories. <laughs> This week, Alex Jones hit with a nearly $1 billion penalty for spreading disgusting lies about Sandy Hook families. The election lies that led to the Capitol riot were, of course, on full display when the January 6th committee laid out their case on Thursday. But this next conspiracy takes the cake, Laura.
2: (laughs) I mean, first of all, would you believe that in some schools, I'm going to say it, students who identify as cats are using litter boxes instead of bathrooms? No, well, you shouldn't believe it. You shouldn't believe it, Allison, because it's not actually true. CNN's K-File did a deep dive into the claim that has been made and found that it's an Internet hoax. But that, of course, has not stopped the claim from taking off on the right.
4: Why do they have litter boxes in some of the school districts so kids can pee in them because they identify as a furry? we have lost our minds
10: embracing lies I mean literally embracing lies okay if some student wants to pretend like a cat and use a litter box after school that's their prerogative whatever but no the school and school resources and the other students and teachers should not have to be
3: uh, put through that because it's a lie how is that happening how is that even possible why are conspiracy theories like this being taken seriously So listen, we're going to do this thing right now, Laura. Mm. We're going to try this thing. Is it time? It's time. And we're going to do something called dueling panels. So I'm going to start with my panel. (laughs) We're going to put five minutes (laughs) up on the clock to tackle the kitty litter conspiracy. And then we're going to toss it back to Laura and we'll see if her panel can do any better. So here with me is Kevin Madden who was a top aide to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, also CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, and Nina Turner, who was co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Okay, I know you guys are thinking, wait, I went into politics for this? Yes. <laughs> yes, you all did, because this is really happening, okay? The Elementary school kids are not peeing in litter boxes, okay? Scott, that's not happening. Why, why are you addressing me?
1: <laughs> I've literally, I've been defending this New York panel all night. We're the Harlem Globetrotters. The other panel is the <laughs> you're Washington You're wasting General. time. You're wasting time. I there am, because lot, there's nothing to say no, about it. No, there's a
3: lot to say. Because politicians, Kevin, are falling for this. There's a Republican uh, gubernatorial candidate in Minnesota, who you just heard, who's falling yeah. for this. There's another one in Colorado who's falling for this. How are
4: they so gullible? Well, look, it says a lot about how people process information in a very hyper-partisan world, right? I mean, like, one of the things that's the The hardest thing about combating misinformation or disinformation is just how strongly people want to believe it when it confirms a prior worldview that they have and it confirms an us versus them mentality. And then you compound that with the simple fact that everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket where they can communicate with everybody instantly and and spread that. And that's that's the amazing thing is that you have rational people who sort of search out an irrationality when it comes to trying to confirm a lot of their political biases. And it's a very, very difficult problem for for politics. And we saw it when we were worked on campaigns, like when I worked on campaigns. This happened back in probably 2008, where, you know, voters would come to us at town halls in New Hampshire asking about the NAFTA superhighway. And we're sitting there going, what's the NAFTA superhighway and how do we how do we combat this misinformation? So it's very difficult.
3: OK, um, hold on. I, I have one thing before we get there, because I do want to pose this to you. It does seem like Republicans fall for this more than Democrats. The Republicans fall for conspiracy theories more than Democrats. Yes.
1: Uh, I, I don't know. I if have, that's polls. True or not.
3: I have <laughs> polls to prove it. Here's the COVID conspiracy. Adults who think that the COVID outbreak was planned. Um Republicans, 34 percent. Democrats, 18 percent. QAnon by party. Republicans, 43 percent. Democrats, 19 percent. People who believe the election lies. Republicans. uh Oh, no. People who believe that Biden is the legitimate president. Democrats, 98 percent. Republicans, 34 percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I lived through the Bush administration, and a lot of people believe a lot of crazy things about George W. Bush that weren't true either. So I agree with Kevin that um, I think that if you have a prior view, like in the case of these schools, if you believe that there are people in the schools who are making the schools into something crazy, so then that's your prior view, and then some other thing comes. It, it's just easy to just tack that on to what you already believe. So I, I do think that is happening. Actually, preparing for this, research this today, oh. there actually is kitty litter in schools. You know why? Because there's cats. No, because sometimes schools put it in there in the event of a lockdown or emergency situation. And if the students mm-hmm. are in the classroom and they cannot get out and go to the bathroom. So it's, it's actually in some schools been used for for the emergency purposes.
3: That's, you know what? That's actually really interesting because you just proved that you can debunk something. You can debunk a hoax. Yep. You can debunk something that sounds absurd by doing one minute of research on your phone. You know, your thoughts on this.
7: I mean, just a lot of distrust of institutions and the government that's really being peddled more often on the right. Don't you
3: think I, that Republicans yeah, they, are more susceptible? They definitely to are more susceptible. I, I
7: would say Look, they, they have, they, they have, they have and, networks and
4: that are much better, more disciplined at sharing this information or aggressive at sharing this information.
3: I mean, information the pizza for parlor for sure. where, where Hillary Clinton a, is supposedly right. running yeah, at the stop. I mean, that's just Democrats don't spread that stuff. Not,
1: not on this network, but on a, on a competitor. I, I see some crazy things said. On a nightly basis, that come from the true fever swamps of the
7: American. Life. Uh, this is right, I, 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 I really, are are not purely. Serious? a conservative issue? No, yes, but, but i deadly serious. But this, <laughs> this issue—I mean, it's hard enough for elementary school teachers to get them to line up in the hallway. To t- nobody, nobody is allowing children to uh, use the bathroom.
5: Of course Kitty litter not. in the
7: classroom was unsanitary as hell. I mean but they're That's also they're
3: further pretending that it's because yes. these kids identify be as, 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 as cats. Yes. I mean when yes. something like yeah. this you they're have to complaining. just and the fact that these two people running for governor yes. in Colorado well, and Minnesota that they fall for it, the gullibility is stunning. I mean,
1: what what's really crazy is who would identify as a cat if you were going to identify <laughs> as an animal? I know what you're dog say. is I really <laughs> superior. <laughs> I no I was saying who's throwing it out if you're thinking of doing it? The I would dog. Yeah. And and they don't use it. You go outside. They have
4: trees at schools.
3: Okay, I see this is God. I see this (laughs) is God off the rails, but I'm not surrendering my last 18 seconds. Bring it home, Kevin. You've got 16 seconds. Go.
4: Well, look, again, this is one of those things where you're using that supercomputer to share misinformation. Actually, use that supercomputer in your pocket to actually research the information and get to the bottom of the truth. Okay,
3: well done, everybody. That's it. Okay, Laura, your panel can now see if you guys can get to the bottom. Bottom of it I mean, does your panel need a,
2: a supercomputer in their pocket to know that kids are not peeing on Kitty Litter? Okay, I was research putting in my panel it. right now. Research yeah. It. yeah. Research. Okay, thank you, Inspector Gadget. Go back to Penny's little computer. Naira Hawk, Rena Shaw, and Margaret Tolliver cool. here. You guys, I, I don't think really
10: I don't think Scott Jensen actually believes that this is really happening, that children are peeing and killing in the classroom. He is running in a state where a Republican has not won statewide since 2006, mm. right? And he is going to tap into whatever code switching sensibility he can come up with to say, OK, those people who, who might turn out to vote for me, this is what they're all talking about. I'm going to tell them as a doctor that I actually believe and know everything they're saying. It's the equivalent to me of the idea of razor blades and apples that go around, you know, that. Theory that goes around every Every Halloween, every Halloween. I I have never seen one of these things yet. Somehow, you know, people hear that there's a kernel of truth. It gets socialized, and but somebody is putting those out. Somebody's taking advantage of Mm. it, of all the gullibility, and that somebody is leadership. Well, why? You know, these people
14: are triggered by pronouns. They're triggered by the fact that society is like going one way, and people are able to identify as something they're not born as. So then they take it further. They're like, "Do you know people are out there identifying as furries?" Okay, look, that is not happening. Anywhere. Kids are not using litter boxes in their schools. We know this. And I struggle with this a little bit because I think if you give air oxygen to these conspiracy theories on a national stage, then we're kind of giving credence to them. But I think it's important. I mean, this has changed people's lives. People have gone into rabbit holes and their lives have been changed. Their families' lives have been ch- it changed because they've got Reddit and other forums at their fingertips where they're finding communities of people who believe the same bizarre stuff
2: that they do. So where it's, it, but where is it originally? You were talking during the break yeah. about the idea of Republican women um, being trained to be skeptical, and this has gone Mm -hmm. totally awry. Totally susceptible
14: to to conspiracy theories. Why? Because I've made my entire career on the right. I can tell you, even at the collegiate level, it was sort of ingrained in sort of how you come up in the young conservative world. Let's question everything. Question Big Brother. Be skeptical of it. That healthy skepticism turned into full-on No, that is something that is happening. And even though it's not happening, that conspiracy theory seeps in and becomes a part of your daily life because you are just inherently skeptical. And that's why women on the right are more likely to give rise to
9: these conspiracy theories. Sorry, give air to them. I feel like there's a parallel reality going on here, which is that most Americans until this week had never heard of the kitty litter conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory. Uh, and, and maybe a lot of people watching this now are like, what are they talking about? i Googling it. But like uh, quietly for months now uh, in Michigan, in Nebraska, in Iowa, in Colorado, uh, where Minnesota. else? In Minnesota. Uh, right. Uh, but it takes uh, for this to go into sort of mainstream to, to breach the wall from conspiracy theory to pop culture discussion point. It takes someone like a Joe Rogan mentioning it or something like uh, a big network uh, news investigation about the issue it's um, it's it seems like funny or fun to talk about when it's kitty litter. But on a much more basic level, like the as a journalist, I struggle a lot with how how do you inform people who have already made up their mind about something that's nonsensical or not based in fact? We've been dealing with this about the election lie theories. We've been dealing about a lot of tenants of January 6th. Number of, there was issues as well
2: with the vaccines.
9: Duke University researchers, a couple of Duke University researchers uh, undertook this very interesting uh, research assignment where they tried to understand which kind of political combination group is most susceptible to misinformation. And they identified a group they called LCCs. These were um, low conscientious Conservatives. And Hmm. it was, they, uh, their research found that this was, it's not that all conservatives, we were talking about this with Scott a few minutes ago, uh, it's not that all conservatives are more susceptible than all liberals or all centrists to conspiracy theories, but there was a particular subgroup the researchers found uh, that were, um, had traits of both impulsiveness and of wanting to disrupt the status Hmm. quo, of being dissatisfied with the status quo and wanting a disruption. And that group, what seemed to be the most susceptible to disinformation, because they didn't want to question or look for counter information. They They didn't respond to fact checkers.
10: It it starts with a kernel of truth, right? Snake oil salesman is a term we all use now, Mm -hmm. but it's based in the fact that actually rattlesnake oil in uh, ancient Chinese medicine was used to heal. And it turned into this big propaganda thing in the 1800s where grifters were capitalizing on this 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 vague sensibility that people had a kernel of truth when you get to socialize and connect that and it helps people come to some answer of how their world works that's what makes conspiracy series so engaging and relevant mm. not just here in the united states i mean this is something people mayor you globally. saw that my belt
2: has a serpentine emblem <laughs> on <laughs> it that's what that was oh i made it open oh it's prime time <laughs>
3: Allison? Laura, we're kind of, we're, <laughs> Laura, we're, Laura, we're a little jealous here because your panel said really smart things and ours went for the comedic effect, we well, felt. I, I,
2: Allison, I ended just now with my belt coming loose. Like, I think I lost it
3: for the panel. Sorry, guys. They were so good. I'm going to go ahead and button this up. Wow. That's a good panel. If your belt flies off, that's very, very good. That's an effective panel. Allison,
2: we are flying by
3: the seat of our pants. It's Friday night. Friday night in Washington. Well done, ladies. Well done. Um, Okay, everybody stick around. We have much, much more to talk about. Tell us what you think about all of this. You can tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. We'll be right back. Inflation is crippling many families. You probably notice it when you go to buy groceries that the prices keep rising. So what does all of that mean for the midterms? Let's bring in Catherine Rampal, Scott Jennings and Nina Turner. So, uh, Nina, let's look at food right now. So here's I think we have a graphic cereals, uh, baked goods still going up by 0.9 uh, percent there meat and poultry. This is just since September, okay? So just, in other words, not since a year ago. This is just since last month. Um, Fruits, vegetables, everything is up. What do you think this means for the midterms?
7: I mean people are hurting and we have to deal with the personal economy. That's most important. A uh, part of the challenge though is that corporations are gouging at this moment. You have CEOs on record saying, I prayed for inflation uh to, to happen. There's something wrong with that. And unfortunately, the Republicans, uh although they say that they're the party of family values, they don't necessarily value pushing policies that actually help to lift the American people. This is one stat. Since 1978, the average CEO pay adjusted for inflation has gone up 1,400 percent. The average worker, 18 percent. It is criminal and it is actually Crushing this country.
3: Before I let you respond to that, Scott, um, mm-hmm. here's what has happened to the average home price of four hundred thousand dollars a year ago. The mortgage was about seventeen hundred dollars um, a month, and then now it's twenty four hundred dollars. So it's gone up by seven hundred and twelve dollars.
1: Yeah, I mean, what what you can afford to do right now is uh, much less than what you could afford just uh, just a few months ago. I mean, it feels like the country's off the rails when you consider how fast. It all happened. And respectfully, Republicans aren't in charge of the country. Democrats are in charge of the White House, the House, and the Senate. And this inflationary crisis has entirely happened on Joe Biden's watch. And in these campaigns all across the country, there is an attempt by the Democrats to deflect blame for this. But not only did their spending policies cause the inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which I can't even believe I'm saying out loud and dignifying that name uh, by speaking it, did nothing did nothing. In the Georgia debate, we we were just
7: helping people in a pandemic. It did nothing.
8: Okay, Catherine. I I disagree with almost everything that's been said so far. You
13: disagree that there's there's
7: inflation?
8: No, I think there's absolutely inflation, but it's much more complicated than either corporations suddenly remembered to be greedy or Democrats spent too much money. Uh, It's a combination of things. I mean, you do have very expansionary fiscal and monetary policy, partly Because of Democrats, partly because of Republicans, frankly. Um, There was a lot of fiscal spending, uh, both during the Trump era and and Biden last year. And the Fed kept rates too low for too long. And you have major supply chain issues. And when you have really strong demand hitting really constrained supply, that's going to drive prices up. So it's it's complicated, and and the solution is mostly involving the Fed raising rates. But there are things that I do think that the president and Congress could be doing to take some pressure. I
3: also the wanted to give us a status report on wages because I remember that wages, uh, so back obviously in COVID days, the height of COVID, had really spiked. So like June 2020, wages were way up, and I think that here we see wages versus inflation. I think the blue. Is the are the wages and now that is they're crossing over. So where
8: are we with wages right now? Is it still an employees market? Wages are growing in nominal terms. So by by that I mean like the actual dollars that appear in my paycheck have gone up, but the amount of stuff that those dollars can purchase has gone down. So basically, wage growth has not kept up with the rising cost of living, um, and. This has been going on for over a year now in the United States. I should be clear that this is, that inflation is a global phenomenon. This is not only in the United States. I do think that there were some policy mistakes that were made that that may have made it worse. Um, But inflation is a global phenomenon in part because the supply chain problems are a global phenomenon as well. Uh, So, yeah, workers are hurting. They may be able to negotiate for higher raises, but even those higher raises that they are able to secure are not keeping up with the cost mm. of groceries and the cost of gra- the gas and the cost of, of rent and everything else that they have to pay.
3: Speaking of negotiating for higher wages, um, this is a sidebar issue, but it comes up from time to time, and I'm really intrigued by it. And it's transparency of salaries. Should you share with your coworkers what you make? Because obviously, transparency helps people bargain better and know better. But it also, I think, um, can increase resentment and like no good can come of it. That one side says no good can come of sharing your salary with somebody else's sharing what the number is. And one side is, no, it helps everybody actually uh, deal with the bosses better. And I know that Laura has some strong thoughts on on that. (laughs) Uh, So, Laura, where are you with that? Well, I, I do,
2: but here's why I have some strong thoughts about it. I mean, first of all, I think that sometimes the powers that be in different fields want people to be pitted against one another to be able to make the competition there. But on the other hand, I can't help but say... In some respects, it feels like rich people problems, because most wage earners in this country know what one another is making. And they don't have the same constraints or conversations surrounding how they have the power dynamic and negotiation power. And the same token, though, I absolutely see the value of being able to have people be transparent. And I see it in the sports world in particular, Alice, and we talked about this. I mean, look at, say, the NBA versus the WNBA, the idea of the um, major soccer teams versus the men versus the women. This comes up to really demonstrate pay inequalities, how it takes women that much longer to be able to make what their, what their male counterparts that make, for black women and women of color to make that much longer, to make what their white counterparts make. These are the conversations more broadly, and I think you're right about transparency helping society in general. So let's start with you. What exactly are you making?
3: <laughs> see, see, here you go. This is exactly my point. It all sounds good.
11: It's all great in
7: theory. Until somebody asks you, oh, Nina, what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, transparency. I think. <laughs> no, she overall. meant what are your thoughts on <laughs> Oh, how much <laughs> serious? Okay, no, I'm serious? <laughs> no, I, I, Laura brings up a good point. I think transparency overall does help in the workplace, especially if workers have a plan to really fight against the bosses and and really work really hard to make sure that they are making better wages. But they and have
3: information, yeah, Scott. Yeah, you're
7: information I, is power. You know, I'm old-fashioned guy.
1: When I was growing up, if if when we were kids, we asked somebody about money or what they were making. We could get the taste slapped out of our we mouth.
3: We didn't talk about politics then either at the well, dinner
1: table. No, I come from a, <laughs> a political, I come from a family of Democrats. I mean, they're not all Democrats now, thank God. But oh, <laughs> but but, if, but we were taught, like, don't, talk, this is not, you don't ask people <laughs> about this. And, and I, I've kind of carried that forward. I know it's a different time and we all overshare. And, you know, and now everybody knows everything about everybody and. And uh, but I just I still carry that with me, and so I, I have that inside of me.
3: Oh, of course, it's a delicate topic, no doubt. It's a delicate topic, and we're all. I, I mean, you can see it's a little bit uncomfortable. But your thoughts
8: on would it be helpful? Well, so well, I, I do. Uh, Laura mentioned something that I have noticed as a, as a journalist. You know, I often interview workers about what they do um, and their working conditions, and I have found that norms are very different. Blue collar workers are often much more willing. To tell me how much mm. they make. I can ask mm-hmm. them that question. It's, it's, it's not an awkward question. I talk with professional workers, white-collar workers, people who make much higher salaries. Very touchy subject. People don't want to get into it. It's almost like asking, you know, a lady her age or something. You know, it's just like a faux pas. You don't ask about it. Um, I will say that there are a number of resources that don't require the awkward conversation that can help workers get more informed about whether they're making a fair wage. You know, there's like uh, Glassdoor and PayScale and other websites where people submit anonymous data. So you can look up what does someone in a comparable field or with comparable experience make. So you don't have to have those awkward conversations. That's great. That's great. That's the way to go. That's well. You know what
2: wasn't awkward, Allison at all? I mean, I just want to point this out that Scott Jennings is my kindred spirit now because. I thought only my family said you could slap the taste out of someone's mouth. So we are alike more than we are no, unlike. My, my
1: taste buds are gone. I got, I got the taste slapped out of my mouth so often. I it's, it's irrelevant what I eat
2: now. Basically, violence is not the answer. It was always figurative. It was always figurative. Everyone, this is phrase. wonderful.
3: Doing panels, building bridges. It's so great. All right, we want to hear from all of you. Tell us what you think about coworkers sharing salary information. Mm-hmm. And if that helps or hurts, you can tweet us at Allison Camerota and The Lower Coats.
2: Look, the midterms, can you believe it, are about three weeks away. And races across the country are really heating up. John Fetterman talking about his stroke and delivering a fluid speech tonight as Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock debated in Georgia's tight Senate race. And that's not all. We had a lot to talk about with Nayara Huck, Rena Shah, and Margaret Tollive. You know, when you think about sort of how the week begins versus how it ends, let's talk about Fetterman for a moment because it began, well, look at this on Tuesday. This is how the conversation surrounding his controversy with Dr. Oz sounded.
1: I use captioning, so that's really the major major, uh, challenge. And every now and then I'll miss a word, every now and then. uh, Or sometimes I'll maybe mush two words together but uh, as loon as I have captioning, I'm able to understand exactly what's being asked. Well,
2: that's what happened on Tuesday. And then today, they released a brand new ad. Here it is.
1: After my stroke, I was just grateful to see Giselle and our kids. Across Pennsylvania, I keep seeing families that don't have enough time to focus on each other. They're struggling, left behind. We've got to make it easier for people to spend time with those they love.
2: Think about how it started and how it's ending and how it's going forward right now. We are less than a month away from the midterm elections. It's going to be very consequential. And I just wonder how you guys view these bookends. We often talk about the story as they're coming, but now that the week has wound down, and this will be old news by Monday possibly, how do you view it?
10: So much of it is about relatability, right? Mm. Your your ability to be able to connect people, and we break it down sometimes. The idea of kitchen table issues or pocketbook issues, and yes, inflation, the economy are important. But so is how people feel about their connection to each other, uh, their ability to exercise their freedoms in their family, and so that this moment, usually in campaigns, is where you start to pivot towards getting out the vote. GOTV, they call it. You're no longer really trying to persuade voters. Debates are the last moment where you're trying to really convince that holdout. And so it's going to be about which issue is really driving people to the polls and how do every one of these candidates, especially Fetterman, how does he get more and more people to turn out for him in the end?
2: You're not converting them, but you do want...
10: What about independent voters? You're still trying to woo them,
2: right?
14: Yeah, of course you are. It's that confidence that every candidate is looking for. How confident do they feel in this person? I think Fetterman, he just resonates in Pennsylvania. I've spent a lot of time throughout the state. And I can tell you, it's got very different pockets. We've all talked about it many times. Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, you got almost two different worlds when you're talking about those areas. But the reality is this, is that race really is made up of two just starkly different people. One lacks empathy. I mean, Dr. Oz had some real opportunity this week to jump in and find that common ground and show himself as a person that is has a passion for policymaking. To me, he's continuing on to show that this is just another act in his grift and, and, and frankly, just something he's doing next. He's been on TV before. He wants to continue his celebrity. So why not just go serve in the highest chamber of the land? Do you I, really- think,
9: I think that the fact that we started the week talking about Uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman Stroke and are ending the week talking about it is because it's an issue that his campaign is still trying to address and move beyond. And they began the week thinking, maybe if we just break it down clinically and explain the process he's going through, everyone will see that he's actually like competent and fine and he can do it. And that this is just about a process. And by the end of the week, uh, It's sort of, it's a different tack, which is to say this isn't really about me and a stroke. This is about how this crisis in my family life has made me much more sympathetic Mm -hmm. to what other families are going through. That's because this race is probably within the margin of error because Oz has closed a huge gap from when he was so closely tied to Donald Trump to his efforts to drive into the economy and crime fears and separate himself from Trump. And Mm -hmm. now Fetterman wants to make sure that that his stroke recovery... Um, is, is not something that hangs him up, but the proof is going to be in the putting in yeah. their d- upcoming debate in a few days, and that's, I think, what voters will be watching. Well, I'm speaking of a
2: gap. I mean, there's a bit of a gap from how it began with one, well, maybe you've heard of Paul Ryan, to where we are right now. Allison. you've got some discussion about this very point. There's a bit of a gap of
3: how things began and how things ended. We do have a then and now example. <laughs> You're so right, Laura. So back in 2017, um... Mm-hmm. Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, was very reluctant to speak about Donald Trump. He dodged many questions about Donald Trump. Here are a few examples.
4: I want your take on the president's comments. I haven't seen all of his comments. I've been a little busy today.
0: I haven't
1: been looking at Twitter. I'm not familiar with the statement. Sorry, I I was pretty busy in the House today, passing our budget. Hmm. Hmm.
3: Okay, there was more. Pretty busy. There there was more. Okay, but um, now, today, well, this week, He was um, very willing to talk about what he thinks Donald Trump's prospects are uh, for re-election. Here he is.
1: I think Trump's unelectability will be palpable by then. We all know that he will lose, or let me put it this way. We all know that he's so much more likely to lose the White House than anybody else running for president on our side of the aisle. So why would we want to go with that? So the only reason he stays where he is because everybody's afraid of him. They're afraid of him, you know, going after them, hurting their own ambition. But as soon as you get sort of the, the herd mentality going, it's, it's unstoppable.
3: OK, so my, my, my. How uh, things change. So, Laura, let me bring in Kevin Madden now. Who knows Paul Ryan well? Worked with him on the Romney-Ryan campaign. Um,
4: who, 2017, it feels like 20 years it ago.
3: doesn't, doesn't <laughs> it? it? It really does. Um, but who slipped him truth serum this week? Well,
4: look, I mean, here's the thing. When you are Speaker of the House you cannot be a pundit. You cannot be an analyst. You have to be a fierce advocate for the policies that you're trying to advance in, in legislation. And you're also trying to represent the collective voice of the Republican majority or the majority that you lead. That's what his job was then. Now... He's an analyst. He's being asked what he thinks, and he's given his opinion. I think as straight as he could.
3: Um, that's fair. Do you agree that Donald Trump is unelectable? I mean, he was so strong in in, in saying that there wasn't like a question. He was talking about his unelectable. Uh, yeah,
4: I am not as declarative on that, just because of the. You have to remember that it's always about who Donald Trump is going to be running against, and if he's running against a, uh, a you know a Biden reelection uh, re-election campaign that has very high inflation, has a very tough teeter, uh, economy teetering on a recession. It's all about the alternative. That's not what
3: Paul Ryan was saying. It's
4: all about the alternative. But Paul 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 Ryan is represents, I think, a very a hopeful wing of the party that thinks that the Republican Party can have an element inside the party rise up and confront Donald Trump. Because he is a lot less electable than some of these really good governors or, or folks who want to sort of put policy and really, um, you know, advance the, the party's interest. Is there in the
3: Republican Party is going to rise up? Well, the contract, there,
4: right? there are going to be a whole bunch, I'll bet. I'll bet, you know, DeSantis is looking at the race. Tom Cotton is looking at the race. Uh, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence is looking at the race. So there will be potential options. There's a whole range of others that are looking at this race. And I think Paul Ryan is reflecting a very hopeful sort of wing of the party that believes somebody has to confront the Trump effect inside the party.
3: Kevin Mann, thank you for your expertise in this. Great to have you here. Okay, up next we have a mystery in Alaska. Where have one billion crabs gone? So, Laura, bad news for crab lovers and for commercial fishermen, because the Ooh. annual harvest of snow and king crab in Alaska has been canceled. State officials say the population for both of the crab species have disappeared. And we're talking about one billion crabs. And it's a mystery. They don't exactly know why there are not enough snow and king Crabs, and I mean, I personally love king crab. It's it's delicious, but that's the least of the problems. I mean, the problem is, where did they go? What's causing this? And obviously, it's going to affect lots of people's families and livelihoods. I mean... I don't, I mean, maybe you lose a hundred, but a billion? I, don't, I mean, how does that happen? How do you misplace a billion? I don't know. I mean, I know we
2: talk about overfishing, and I know this is a very real thing because people love the product. And of course, when the demand outpaces the supply, you've got all sorts of problems. But the idea that there's a, a thousand gone, I mean, a billion gone, is just mind boggling. And you're right. At first, you read the headline and you think, why is this news for people? But you're so right. There are industries built around this. These are livelihoods. These are people who are working in this field. And it's going to have a big impact. I mean, look at this now. The formula of a crisis, the ideas about this, you're seeing other uh, shortages across the country. This is real
3: in the economy, and this is yet another example. And they're not sure if it's because of climate change and global warming because the Bering Sea has warmed so much in the past few years that it's affecting the stock, Mm. or if the Fish Management Council has just allowed it to be overfished. But either way, people are going to go bankrupt, for sure. Businesses are going to close. They're going to have to sell their boats. I mean, this is a real problem.
2: It is. I'm glad we pointed it out, too, because I think in the way you talked about it, I think a lot of people saw this and they went, oh, OK, why are we talking about this? It's important. And it's also time to hear from you all because you're important. And we want you to sound off because your tweets are next. All right, it's time to sound off.
3: Allison, what is the chatter on social media tonight? Okay, Laura, a lot of people um, sharing their thoughts on sharing salaries. So here's mm. one on Twitter that says, this is from Amanda James, Absolutely not. I shared with a coworker that I received a pay increase about 30 years ago, and it caused a problem. I have not done it since. See, that was part of what you were talking about, right? The idea that it can cause that tension and
2: people know about that. She's sounding off on that. That's possible. There's another one here. It's a different take on salary. And it says, should coworkers share info about their salaries? Well, Erin Scott says, I don't understand why people don't want to tell people how much they make an hour. You shouldn't be judged on what you make. The more you make, don't make you a better person. It means you pay more in taxes. Well, (laughs) I mean, that is absolutely true. Is it not
3: It is. Now, here's one from a very astute um, viewer. Huh. Here's something positive about you two. You are awesome co-anchors of this new format for CNN Tonight. You both lead great discussions, and I'm glued every night because of it. You both rock. That's from someone calling themselves Alex Donovan, but I think it might be my mom.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks, Mom. We appreciate it. And really, a very intelligent statement to make. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. And I love
3: the idea of CNN dueling panels. I loved that tonight. That was great. There you go. I love that the person loves it. All right, you know where to find us at Allison Camerata and at Laura Coates. Thanks so much for sounding off, and we'll be right back. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a surge in anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S., increasing 164 percent in some of the largest cities. So this week, CNN Heroes salutes Michelle Tran, a Chinese and Vietnamese American whose nonprofit Soar Over Hate has provided more than 30,000 personal safety devices as well as self-defense classes to Asian Americans.
2: This year, the organization has held a dozen events in New York where the turnout shows just how worried their community is about safety.
10: The day of our distribution, the line surpassed four blocks around the neighborhood where people waited almost two hours to obtain a personal safety device from us. To make the noise, you pull out the pin and it scares people away and it alerts people around you. It was Simultaneously heartbreaking, but also motivating to see so many people come out. I think it highlighted the need and the fears that many folks like me are experiencing right now.
12: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Bye.
10: I hope that our
3: work helps save lives. That's our only hope moving forward. To learn about all the ways that Michelle and her organization are working to combat Asian hate, you can go to CNNHeroes.com. Laura, this is really fun.
2: For me, too. Thanks for watching, everyone. We'll see you next week. Our coverage continues. Have Good a night, Allison. Weekend.
0: We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night.